Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 this morning. Matthew chapter 18. So we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. You can find this on page 773 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles this morning. Matthew 18, and we'll be focusing on verses 5 through 14. And this is part of Jesus' instruction to his disciples after they had asked him the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he brought the little child into their midst, and he'd shown them uh, what, that, that unless they humble themselves and become as children, they will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. That being great in the kingdom of heaven means recognizing, as we thought about last time we were in Matthew, that, that we're not great, and that we must recognize that and, and accept a lowly position, making much of the one who is great, and honoring those around us for his sake by receiving even one such little child in his name. Well, Jesus is continuing this teaching, but he's, he's turning his attention a little bit this morning. Uh, in verse 5, he had, he had shown one of the implications of this way of thinking about greatness is to honor others for Christ's sake in order to honor him who is truly great. And what we'll be seeing in these verses is kind of the negative side of that. Not to mistreat others in our own pursuit of our own greatness. That's what inevitably happens, is it not, when we are seeking to put ourselves first. Others become obstacles in our way and we end up hurting them or using them in sinful ways for our own selfish gain. And so Jesus, in these verses that we'll be reading this morning, he gives some of the most frightening warnings in all of the Bible. And I'll just remind you, these were not invented by some crusty medieval theologian you know, in, a, in the, a dark castle somewhere in the dark ages, surrounded by torture devices. These are the words of Jesus himself. Jesus spoke these words. And so I'm going to invite you, if, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. We're going to start reading in verse 5. We're going to read down to, verses, uh, to verse 14. Jesus says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You may be seated. Well, if the main idea of uh, the first few verses of Matthew 18 that we thought about last time was that uh, we're great when we recognize that we're not and live to honor the one who is, as we come to this next section, verses 5 through 14, the main lesson here is that we must be careful how we treat God's little ones because he cares deeply for each of them. That's, that's the main point of, the, of this text, and it'll be the main point of the message this morning, that we must be careful how we treat God's little ones because he cares deeply for each of them. Now, who are these little ones of whom he speaks? I don't believe that, that Jesus is simply talking about uh, literal children here, you know, those under a certain age. Rather, it seems that he's speaking symbolically, using the term little ones for any of those who have renounced self and become like children and followed Christ in faith. In other words, he's speaking of believers. Notice how he sheds light on the identity of these little ones in verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, who believe in me, Jesus seems primarily to have believers in mind. And this is, uh, this is nothing new. This is not a, a, a rare or abnormal way to speak about Christians. In Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus had praised God the Father, saying, You've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to little children. Now, he's, he's, not, talking, uh, he's, not, he's not saying there that the only ones who see the things that pertain to salvation are those you know, under the age of, you know, 13 or whatever, whatever age you might, you might categorize as, as children. He's, he's talking about those who are like little children in, in humility, not the great ones of this world. In, in John 13, Jesus calls his disciples, who were grown men, listen to how he calls his, his disciples, Peter and James and John. He says, he says, little children, little children, in 1 John, little children is used over and over again as a, as a way of speaking uh, about Christians in general. Believers are God's children, spiritually adopted through Christ into the family of God. And every Christian, every true Christian, is therefore a child of God. And we can cry out, Abba, Father. We can call out to God as our Father, Every believer is one of God's little ones, whether they are 25 or 12 or 55 or 75. This means that the warnings here about despising one of these little ones or causing one of these little ones to sin, they apply to 8-year-olds to and 15-year-olds and 55-year-olds and 85-year-olds. 
any of those who are God's little ones, his children. He takes it personally how his children are treated. And he doesn't take it kindly when someone tries to hurt one of his kids. Just as we would not take it kindly if someone tried to hurt one of our children. Our first point this morning is is that we must be careful how we treat God's little ones. Be careful how you treat God's little ones. We must be careful, first of all, not to cause them to to sin. This is what Jesus is saying in verses uh, 5 and 6. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. A great millstone. Um, This was uh, a heavy stone that was used for crushing and grinding grains of wheat or or barley or whatever have you into flour. And the type of millstone spoken spoken of here, it wasn't just like a little little bowl and that little mortar and pestle. This was the the millstone that had to be moved by a a beast of of, uh, burden, like a donkey. It had to be moved by by a strong animal. So this was a large stone, like a boulder. So think of like having a, a boulder tied to your neck and then rolled off into the ocean. And guess what? You're going to go down with it. And you're not going to stop anytime soon. Now, according to Bible scholar Craig Keener, the Jewish people regarded uh, this punishment as, as the, the awful sort of punishment, kind of the cruel, barbaric sort of punishment that the pagans would inflict. Like this... Yeah, that's what, that's what those cruel and just godless, evil people that live in the darkest parts of the earth might do. You know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't actually punish someone like this. But Jesus is actually saying that such a death like this would be preferable. It would be a better fate than what will be coming your way if you cause one of his little ones to sin. Now, whatever... Whatever this this is that would elicit such a threat from Jesus' lips, it must be pretty bad. Jesus takes it very seriously. So what what is this crime causing one of the the little ones to sin or, or to, as some translations, to stumble, to offend them, in other words? Not in the sense of just, you know, hurting their feelings, but but causing them to fall into sin. Well, the kind of sin, the kind of stumbling block, and it's not specified. Jesus doesn't say those who cause one of these little ones to sin in this particular way. You know, there's just this tiny little segment of sin I'm thinking about. You know, you can cause them to sin in a whole host of ways. That's no big deal, but no, that's not what he does. He simply speaks generally. As, as Leon Morris notes, all sin, all sin draws people away from Christ. So Jesus warns anyone who would discourage a believer from obeying Christ or tempt them to sin in any way. Anyone who would put a stumbling block in the way of one of Christ's little ones as they seek 
to obey their Father in heaven. Anyone who would entice them or deceive them or seduce them to do that which their Father has forbidden. To do this is to do the very work of the devil. He is the original tempter, is he not? What did he do in the Garden of Eden? He came to the first son of God there, Adam, Adam and Eve. And what did he do? He tempted them to sin. And so think about this. Whenever someone does this, they're doing the very work of Satan for him. They're showing that they're working as an agent of the kingdom of darkness. Wounding and hurting Christ's children. Working to undermine his kingdom. The frightening thing about this, the scary thing is, how easily, how easily we do this. Have you ever mocked a Christian? Have you ever tempted a Christian even to do something small, a small sin, a small disobedience? Have you ever discouraged a Christian from serving Christ in some way? Maybe put some pressure on them to to compromise. Perhaps you weren't thinking of the implications of what you were doing. Perhaps you were just thinking of, you know, I just want to have some fun. And they don't need to be so, so puritanical and so strict. Kids, maybe, maybe uh, ha- have you ever encouraged another kid to disobey their parents or to do something that you knew they shouldn't be doing? Or, or maybe you were doing something and they tried to tell you, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. And you got angry with them. Maybe you mocked them or said, you know, called them a name or something. What were you doing in that moment? You're, you're discouraging them from doing the right thing. You're causing them to sin. Maybe, you know, you've done this in a, in a dating relationship with, with one that you, you say you love. Come on, let's, let's watch this together. Let's, let's do this. Or, or maybe in your marriage, you've discouraged your spouse in some way from doing the right thing or, or in some way you have, you have led them down a path of, of sin. Perhaps you, you manipulated and, and threatened or, or sulked when they didn't give in and sin with you. Maybe giving them the, the silent treatment until they would give in. We can cause others to sin both directly and even indirectly. You know, even, even just through our own sinful example. We may not be actually trying to get people to sin with us. But our example may cause others to sin. A story is told of an, of an alcoholic father who snuck out of the house one winter, uh, one winter night to go to his favorite bar. And he hadn't gone far when he heard some soft crunching in the snow behind him. And turning around, he saw his five-year-old son. He said, what are you doing out here? And the boy said, I'm just trying to follow in your footsteps, Dad. 
Well, as the story goes, he, he never took another drink. But it just goes to show that we may lead others to sin, we may cause others to sin, and not even realize what we're doing. We can cause others to stumble into sin through hypocrisy. Whenever we're talking the talk, but we're not walking the walk. And, and therefore, we, we make other Christians less, less alarmed about sin. and We make, make them feel comfortable with ungodliness. Hear Jesus' words. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So he's saying that it would have been better for you if right before you did that thing, somebody just took you and did this to you. That would have been a better fate for you than what you have coming to you now. Better treatment. You know, it'd be a miserable way to die, but at least it's relatively short. The, the, the suffering and the suffocation would eventually come to an end down there in the depths of the ocean. But there is no end to the everlasting fire of hell to which people go who are guilty of this. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. In, the, in these verses, Jesus is saying, listen, avoid hell at all costs. No matter what you have to do, don't go there. Because once you've been sentenced there, once you are thrown into the eternal fire, there is no escape. There is no suicide as an quote-unquote easy way out. There is no end to the unimaginable pain and grief and despair for body and soul in the outer darkness, in the, in the unquenchable fire. There is no escape. Those that are sentenced there, those that are thrown into the eternal fire, notice that word, it's, it's eternal. When, when they have suffered there for a longer period of time than the entire history of mankind, it will simply be the beginning of sufferings. They will have made no progress. It, it, it won't be like they've, they're doing time and, the, and they've only got a certain amount of time left. They'll be no closer to the end of their suffering than the first moment they first were pierced by that unimaginable pain. It's the eternal fire. So it's, it's no wonder that Jesus is saying, listen, if you have to, I don't care if you have to amputate your hands and feet and tear your eyes out, do whatever you must do to avoid going there. Now, if it were only that easy, right? If you could simply, uh, you know, just cut off your hand and escape hell. You know, Jesus, he's not encouraging you to literally, um, 
you know, amputate your hand because that won't help you with your sin problem, ultimately. You'd have to cut your heart and soul out as well. What did Jesus say? Where do, where do evil thoughts and adulteries and sexual immoralities and slanders, where does it all come from? It comes from the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the problem is not just our hand or our eye, it's, it's within us. It's no physical amputation would save your, your body and soul from hellfire. But Jesus' point, point is that if it could, it would totally be worth it. Totally be worth it. Do whatever you must to avoid going to this place. But as I say these things, perhaps in your heart of hearts, you're thinking, well, I've done some of these things. I've, I've caused someone else to sin before. I have led a, a child of God into ungodliness. I've discouraged a child of God from doing the right thing before. I've, I'm sure by my example, I've made some of God's children more comfortable with sin. What now? Am I, am I doomed? Is all lost for me? Well, if you feel this way, I want you to know that um, I've felt that way before. This uh, passage, I remember reading it several years ago, and I just remember it hit me like a semi-truck. And at the, at the time I read it, this was several years ago, and I'd, I had been a Christian for a few years at that point, but all at once I felt like I was lost all over again. I thought, oh no, like is, is this it for me? Can I be forgiven for what I've done? Because I, you know, I've, I've read this, and as I thought about what this means, I'm like, well, I've, I've done that. I've, I've led others to sin, even, even Christians at times in my past. Could God forgive me? Is there any hope for me? And I remember I, I prayed that afternoon. Uh, I prayed like I never prayed before. You know, I was just pleading for God, Lord, I don't know if I can be forgiven. This, this text seems to, it seems pretty bleak, but God, if there's some way for me to be forgiven, please have mercy upon me. And in God's kindness, he, he showed me that, that there can be forgiveness for even people who have, who have caused others to sin or tempted others to do sin. Consider the Apostle Paul, for example. Before he was saved, before God arrested him with his grace on the road to Damascus, he made it his life's aim to cause God's little ones to sin. Reflecting back on his former life, Paul says, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So what was Paul doing there? He was using, he was trying to instill fear in those that would follow Christ so that they'd stop following Christ. And he was using violence to do it. 
He was trying to make Christians ashamed of Christ and his gospel and afraid to speak of him. He was casting stumbling blocks in the way of Christ's little ones. And yet God showed him mercy. What about Peter? Peter did this after he was converted. In Galatians 2, there's an interesting account where where it records that the apostle Peter showed partiality and hypocrisy. And he was, by his actions, he was living out of step with the gospel. He was, in other words, he was living as if the gospel wasn't true and that you still had to do certain works in order to be right with God. And, and therefore, he wasn't eating with the Gentiles anymore, even though he'd done that previously. And what does it say? It says in Galatians 2.13 that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Peter was being a hypocrite, and in his sin, he caused someone else, another one of God's children, to be led astray and to sin against God. This is the Apostle Peter we're talking about here. And and it's no wonder that Paul had to rebuke him sharply, like to his face, like in front of everybody. But Peter... Peter was rebuked and Peter repented and Peter was forgiven. Um, we have, this, this happened before he wrote First and Second Peter, before he took part in the, uh, in the Jerusalem council in Acts uh, 15. So Peter repented, he was forgiven, he was restored. And so here we have Paul and here we have Peter and, and because of that, I believe that with this sin, that even with, even with the, the sin of causing others to sin, there can be forgiveness for those who truly repent. If you repent, if you humble yourself before God and beg for his mercy and pardon, you may be forgiven even of this. But if you don't, this sin will lead you to hell itself. And that's not just true of this sin, that's true of every sin. We're focusing on one this morning, but the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What this text shows us is how seriously God takes sin. And yet, because of Christ, there can be forgiveness, even of such sins as this. Jesus paid it all. In in Colossians 2, we read that that those who repent and believe, they're forgiven of all. We're forgiven of all our trespasses. You know, not just the little ones. We're forgiven of all our trespasses. How? It says, by God canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Legally, we deserve, I deserve, all of us deserve to be thrown Well, we deserve worse than to be thrown into the depths of the sea. We deserve hell itself. That's what the law requires. That's what what justice would require of us. But this he sets aside for believers, nailing it to the cross. So as Christ was nailed to the cross, your sin debt 
was nailed there as well. If you trust in him, the, in, the innocent, the sinless one in place of the guilty. While we should have been sunk in the depths of hell with the guilt of our sins like a great millstone sinking us ever lower and lower in the bottomless pit, instead, Christ was sunk in the depths of God's wrath on the cross until he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the very sky itself went black as Christ suffered body and soul what we deserve for our sin. Christ taking our place. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And yet as the book of Romans says, he rose from the dead for our justification so that we, no matter what you've done, even if you've, even if you've sinned against one of God's children, you can be declared not guilty and forgiven and pardoned and accepted by God. If you have any questions about this, if you're, if you're wondering, well, how can I have peace with God? I would urge you what, what the scripture says. Repent. Turn from your sin. Own up to it. Confess it. And turn to God. Bow before him and trust in what Christ did to save you. Ask him to forgive you and he will save you. And if you have any questions about that, please come talk to me after the service. Talk to another church member. We'd love to help you know that you have peace with God. Well, if God has so forgiven us, if, uh, if God has so loved us, let us love and honor him in return. How can we express our gratitude to God for forgiving us of this infinite debt? One way he calls us to love him is, in return is by, by loving his people, loving others, and especially our fellow Christians with whom we've been united into the family of God. Our Lord and Savior, uh, in verse 10, he, he says to be careful not to despise them. Don't despise one of these little ones, he says. To despise them, what does that mean? To despise them would mean to, to treat them with contempt, as if they're insignificant, lesser than, expendable. It's to be careless about them, to be careless about other people. And this attitude of, of despising this is what makes a person careless about causing others to sin, does it not? Jesus calls us to treat even, even the least important, even the seemingly least significant Christian with the greatest care and honor and respect. Not even one must be despised. So what, are, what are some ways that, that we might despise one of Christ's little ones? Uh, John MacArthur has a, a great list of like seven different ways that Christians might despise one another. Um, he said one, one way that we do it is when we show partiality. You know, when we treat one with more respect and care and then we treat another with less, simply because of maybe the amount of money they have or their physical appearance or the color of their skin or could be their, their church denomination, maybe the accent that they, that they speak with, or some other superficial thing. And we, we kind of look down on them and, and treat them with less 
respect. Showing partiality. We dis- when, we, we, when we despise other believers by withholding help from those in need. We despise other believers when we take advantage of them for personal gain. We despise other believers when we're indifferent to their struggles. You know, just, just a general attitude of carelessness. Like, ah, that's their problem. That doesn't concern me. I've got, I've got my own life to worry about. We must not do that. When, when we're indifferent to them, when we see them struggling in some way, maybe, maybe they're struggling with sin or maybe they're down and we, we don't care to, enough to encourage them. We're basically saying, what we're saying is, hey, you know what? You're not even worth my time, my effort, my energy, whatever inconvenience it would cost me to help you. You're not, you're not worth that. I've got more important things to do. That's despising one of Christ's little ones. We despise them when we're careless with their reputation. This one happens a lot, especially in the, the age of the internet and social media. Listen, Proverbs 22.1 says that a good name is more to be chosen than great riches. So what this is saying is that a person's good name, their reputation, in other words, is a more valuable possession than all of the money in their bank account, than their house, than their car. And so think twice before you're careless and reckless with somebody's reputation, especially a believer. You know, would you, would you uh, just get in their car and, and just wreck it just, just because? Or burn their house down? If you wouldn't do that, then watch what you say about them around other Christians. Watch what you say. You know, when we carelessly take up a suspicion against a believer or spread an ill, port, Ill report against them, you know, maybe, maybe we are not even sure if it's true, but we've just heard it. And we just carelessly, you know, open our mouths and pass it on to others. Well, I've heard this about so-and-so. What are we doing? We're being careless with something that's more valuable to, the, the, to them than all the money in their bank account. We're despising them and treating them as though they're, they're just really nothing. Beware. God takes all of this very seriously. Consider, consider how differently God treats his little ones. And uh, this brings us to our second point. Now, don't panic. I'm, we're about out of time. Point number two is, is more of just like a, a little highlight. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But we could. Listen, we're to treat God's little ones with care because, point number two, God cares deeply for each one of them. He cares deeply for each of them. So verse 10, what's the reason they're not to be despised? Jesus says, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Listen, angels serve those who are to inherit eternal life, Hebrews 1.14. The angels are serving believers. And so I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, the highest courtiers of glory, the angels, count it their honor to watch over the lowly in heart. Those who are servants to poor saints and little children, the angels, 
are allowed free entrance to the king, what must he think of the little ones themselves? None of God's little ones are expendable in his eyes. This is Jesus' point with the, the story he gives of the, the sheep and the one that gets lost. You know, think, think parents. Well, all of us, really. You know, as we're sitting in this room and there's all these little kids here, if we saw one of these little toddlers just wandering around in the street, what would you do? Right? You would, I would hope you'd jump up and run out there and you'd probably risk your own safety to rescue the kid. You wouldn't say, well, that's not my kid. Or, oh, they ought to know better than being out there in the street. No. Each one matters. None of them are expendable. And, and with the shepherd, even, even a shepherd with his sheep, he doesn't see one missing and say, well, I got 99 more. One, one doesn't matter so much. That one, you know, that one was going astray a lot anyways. I don't have to deal with that one. Good grief. I got, I got others. I got others. That's not the attitude of the shepherd. He leaves all those behind and he goes after the one to bring it back. And, and Jesus' point is that so it is not the will of my Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Each one matters to God. And so believers, do we, do we treat others, do we treat other Christians in this way? Or do we treat a lot of them as just kind of expendable? Like, I don't need them in my life. Maybe you see one of them going astray in some way, and you're just like, ah, whatever. I've got other people over here that are like my crew that I run with. They can get lost. That's not the attitude of the good shepherd. We must, brothers and sisters, if we want to have the heart of God, we must cultivate compassion in our hearts as he has compassion for us. Praise the Lord. He doesn't see us straying at some point and say, good riddance. You know, just cancel that one. He doesn't do that. He's patient and long-suffering with us. And so just as a, as a word of application in closing, you know, the book of James in verses five, uh, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, so think of a sheep straying from the right way, somebody wandering from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Do we know someone who is wandering from the truth? Has a, you know, have, have thought simply of our own comfort and convenience and security held us back from pursuing them? Or... I pray this would be the case with all of us. When we see someone straying, we risk life and limb and even lay down our lives if need be to go after them because covering a multitude of sins, even to cover one sin, that's worth more than my life itself. Isn't it? The honor of the king is at stake when we see someone straying or wandering from the truth. Maybe you see someone compromising with the world. Maybe they're getting caught up in, in wokeness. Maybe they're starting to march to the drum of, of human approval. 
I just plead with you, don't immediately count them out. Don't immediately think, well, they're probably just an apostate. They're probably just, you know, they probably never even knew Christ to begin with. Go after them. You know, there's a time to stop going after someone. Titus 3.10 says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. But before we do that, we've got to warn once and then twice. We've got to go after others like the good shepherd, keeping watch over ourselves lest we too be tempted. And remembering that one of these days, maybe that very person that you had to go after at one point, they might have to come after you. Let us not forget these things. Let us, by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, let us love as he loves. Let us treat his little ones, every single one of them, with the utmost care and respect and honor. Let us be careful not to, not to cause even one of them to stumble or to despise even the least of them. And seeing that God cares for them so much, let us be careful how we treat them by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a heavy passage. It's a convicting passage, Lord. I, I just recognize in my own life falling so short so many times. But Lord, we pray. We pray for strength to do your will. And we thank you that Christ came after us when we were at our worst and that you continue to seek us out, to discipline us when we need to be disciplined, Lord. We thank you for your patience with us. Help us to be patient with others. Help us to care for others, to win them back. Lord, to lay down our lives for one another as you have laid down your life for us. To you be all the glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.